following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're in the midst of our series uh, called Save as we're looking back at the events that take place uh, when someone comes to believe in Jesus or, as we say, quote, become saved. We began the series with the doctrine of election, which tells us that we were chosen by God, not because of anything we've done, but because of grace alone. And it had to be God that made the first move because lost in our sin, none of us have a desire to make that move toward him. Then next, we looked at the doctrine of regeneration. The Bible tells us that apart from God and in our natural state, all of us are spiritually dead. In other words, we're incapable of having a relationship with God because our sin uh, separates us from him. And so in regeneration, God imparts spiritual life to us, a process that's uh, often referred to in the Bible as being born again. And like election, the work of regeneration happens without our participation. It's all God's work that he does in our life. Thirdly, we looked at conversion. And in conversion, we have the first doctrine in the order of salvation that involves our action. Conversion has essentially two elements. It's about turning away from our sin uh, through what the Bible calls repentance. And then secondly, turning to God in faith. And as I brought out in that message, uh, this faith that's involved in conversion is not the same as agreeing to a fact like the sky is blue. And it's not about wishful thinking, like having faith that our favorite sports team uh, will win the championship. It's to enter into a relationship with Jesus centered on trust. And that trust is not only that one day he's going to get me to heaven when I die, but it's also that he's going to meet my daily needs in this life. Last uh, message, uh, Brother Peter preached on the doctrine of adoption, uh, which describes the process uh, whereby God makes us members of his family. And listening to that message on the podcast, I thought that Peter did a really good job unpacking how so many of the benefits we receive as Christians flows out of this doctrine of adoption and how our adoption meets some of the deepest longings and needs that are found in the human heart. Um, I thought that Dennehy family video was so powerful, uh, painting a beautiful picture of adoption and um, the strange and yet beautiful family that's created when God takes people who really are not part of his original family but incorporates them into his own. I shared as we were going through the adoption message uh, community group study um, with my community group about um, how when I was younger, this doctrine of adoption, this idea that we're sons and daughters of God didn't really mean that much to me uh, as I was growing up. It wasn't really much later until I became a father myself that I understood the power of that message, that we're sons and daughters of God. Um, and to my community group, I illustrated it uh, in this way of, you know, there was a day when uh, I went out to the garage to get something from there. And when I was out there in the garage, I noticed that uh, there was some damage to the front bumper of one of our cars. And uh, it was slightly dented. The uh, right side reflector lights were all busted up. And so I asked, uh, went back in the house and asked our first daughter, Joy, if she knew what had happened to the car because she was 
the one that was primarily driving it at the time. And uh, she wouldn't make eye contact with me. In fact, uh, she almost kind of cowered in fear as she almost whispered that uh, she got into an accident. And that accident uh, had actually happened weeks earlier, but that she was too afraid to tell me. When she said that to me, um, I was heartbroken. In my heart, I was thinking, uh, what did she think that I was going to do? And I had thought that through all the years of raising her that I had made so many efforts to basically let her know that she doesn't ever have to be afraid of me, that she can come to me with anything that's going on in her life. And yet, um, when this incident happened, I just was crushed by this feeling that even despite my best efforts, she doesn't know my heart. Uh, And I, I realized that from the perspective of the child, it's always so much more difficult than it is from the parent to really believe in and have the certainty of that unconditional love, Uh, that she just really is still struggling to fully believe that as her parent, there is nothing that I wouldn't do to love and protect her. Uh, I do think that from the perspective of the child, it is always more difficult to understand this kind of love. Uh, Listen to the heart of God through the voice of his prophet Hosea, when he says in Hosea 11 verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Even as God is about to discipline the Israelites because of their stubborn rebellion against them, you can hear his heart breaking even at the thought of the punishment that he's about to inflict on him. That despite um, the fact that this punishment has to be done, uh, his heart is broken over it because of his love for the children of Israel. I think this is the great assurance and security that we receive through the uh, doctrine of adoption. Well, I want to turn now to the doctrine of justification. This is arguably the most important of all the doctrines in the order of salvation. Speaking of justification, Martin Luther said, on this article rests all we teach and practice. John Calvin and other great reformers said justification is the main hinge upon which religion turns. At the most basic level, we all understand the concept of justification because we've all experienced it on a regular basis in our daily lives. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what this looks like. If you're into football, uh, you'll often see fights erupting between two players on the field during a game. And as any NFL fan knows, it's often the guy who responds to a dirty play who gets called for the penalty. And it's not until they broadcast a few seconds before the fight that you realize uh, it was the, quote, uh, victim who actually started the fight. And it's only when we rewind that tape and show the broader context of the fight uh, that the player with the penalty feels justified, that he's vindicated to show that what he did uh, wasn't um, totally unreasonable in that situation. Um, let me give you another example. I'm at my desk working on my sermon slides looking for an image of a depressed woman for one of the messages. Um, when one of the other pastors walks into my office and sees this on my computer monitor, this Google image search screen filled with all these women's faces. <laughs> and he's in my office, uh, popping his head in my office so he can ask a question, but you can clearly see that he's distracted by what he sees on my screen. And now I feel the need to justify myself. (laughs) It's for my sermon, 
Oh, of course it is. No, I mean it. It's really for my sermon. Oh, yeah, I had no doubt. I really mean it. It's for my sermon. As these examples illustrate, to be justified is to stand before a charge uh, with a defense that proves our innocence. Now, these are lighthearted and limited examples of trying to justify ourselves. But what about when the audience is not a friend or a coworker or a family member, but it is God himself who sees everything that we've ever done and even knows the hidden things in our heart that no one else can see? And what if it's not about a single incident, particularly a single misunderstanding that you're trying to justify, but you're asked to make a defense for your entire life? What about all those times when it wasn't just an innocent misunderstanding? And the truth is that you really don't have a good defense for your actions. This is what's at stake in this doctrine of justification. At the heart of justification is the singular question, how can I be right with God? It's interesting that in both the Hebrew and the Greek, this word for justification, as well as the word for righteousness, come from the same root word. They're in the same word family. In other words, justification is dealing with the issue of how can we be viewed as righteous before our God? You know, every once in a while, you'll hear people say something like, uh, we make our own heaven and we make our own hell. But hell is not simply a state of mind or a self-imposed punishment. It's a direct result of the fact that we stand before a holy God who is our judge. And it's before him that every single person on this earth must give an account of their lives. As it says in James 4, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Now, in order to understand the present teaching on justification, um, I think it's helpful to know a bit about the history of how we got to where we are regarding this doctrine. And I want to do that by looking at the Roman Catholic Church and what they taught about justification. Because according to the Roman Catholic view, the process, uh, justification is basically the process of becoming increasingly more righteous before God. In other words, the only way to be deemed worthy and to pass God's judgment on that judgment day and to be able to enter into heaven is to actually become the kind of righteous person that is deserving of that reward. This is a process that in the Catholic view goes on through your entire life as God provides different means or different ways for you to gain this righteousness that you're going to need at the judgment day. For example, a big one for the Catholics is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the Catholics believe, uh, contribute to a believer's justification because her good works on earth earn her extra merit before God. And because she is overflowing with these good works, she is able to give some of her credit to our account, giving to us from the goodness that she has done. As the mother of God, Catholics believe that Mary has a special ability to pray on her behalf. And that's why Catholics see Mary as so important to their justification before God. That's also why the sacraments like baptism, penance, and communion are so important to Catholics as well. They believe that these are all means that God has given us to gain more righteousness before him. 
for Catholics attending Mass is so important. It's not necessarily because you want to go there and hear a great message that you can apply into your life or even about having a great worship set so that you can praise God. What it's really about for, for most Catholics is to simply be present when the priest holds up the elements for the Eucharist. And in that moment, there is this fundamental belief that God does something supernatural. Um, that uh, in that moment of the Eucharist, some of the righteousness that we, meet, we, that we need for our justification is mystically infused into our life. Now, at the same time, um, there are things that can also lower your level of righteousness, certain sins that you can, that you can commit. And uh, within the Catholic systems, there's even different levels of sins that you can uh, be guilty of, which can have different levels of effect on your righteousness before God. And so at the end of the day, for a Catholic, you're never quite sure where you stand when it comes to your justification before God. In other words, at one point in your life, uh, you may be in this, quote, state of grace, experiencing the full acceptance of God in His favor, but you may backslide, you may fall into certain sins, and then suddenly you lose that state of grace and you find yourself now unjustified before God. And if you aren't able to reach a certain level of justification by the time that you die, and the truth is, Except for the exceptional saints, most people are not going to reach that adequate level of justification. Um, you have to basically, after you die, go to purgatory, where you have to finish that work of justification for many years. Purgatory, according to the Catholic teaching, is a place of torment and hard labor, where you work off all the wrong that you've done uh, throughout your life, and you do that until you've earned enough righteousness to be permitted into heaven. Now this typically will go hundreds, thousands, could be even tens of thousands of years of this kind of torment before you can finally earn your way into heaven. Now Catholic scholars acknowledge that the Bible nowhere explicitly teaches about a place called purgatory. But it becomes a necessity because of their view of justification. Otherwise, how is anyone else uh, except the super saints ever going to make it to heaven? How will anyone be able to stand justified before God? Because in our life, we all do plenty of wrong things as well as attempts to do good things. And so there needs to be a place where someone can work out that bad stuff and finally be able to stand before God one day justified. As a Catholic monk, this was the world that Martin Luther the great reformer, lived in. And so it's not surprising that Luther was endlessly tormented with the anxiety of unknowing. Am I right with God? To the best of his ability, Luther searched for this assurance that he would be found righteous in God's eyes when he stands before him on that judgment day, that he would be acceptable to God. And yet the harder that he tried, the more masses that he attended and even officiated, the more penance that he observed, the more good works that he attempted to do in this life, the more miserable and insecure Martin Luther became. Because no matter how much he tried, it never felt like he was doing enough to satisfy this God who is holy and perfect. He was never doing enough to undo all of the wrong 
that he was doing in his life. He was plagued by a guilty conscience that simply gave him no peace. Because deep in his heart, he knew that a war raged within him. A war against sin that he all too often felt like he was losing. And so Martin Luther's prayer became, how can I find a gracious God? Where was this grace that he was reading about throughout Scripture? Because as far as Luther could tell, he couldn't find it experientially in his personal relationship with God in the Catholic system. Uh, Martin Luther is quoted as saying, I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hated him. And maybe this is the life that some of us know as well, or have known. I mean, I don't think you need to be a Catholic in order to experience the struggle of feeling like you're inadequate before God and feeling that no matter what you do, it never quite seems like it's enough to undo all the bad or to find approval in God's eyes. And so Martin Luther struggled to find grace until one day the truth of God's word broke through that darkness like a blinding light when he read these words in Romans 1.17 that say, The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. For the first time, Martin Luther understood what Paul was saying in Romans 1.17, that justification was a gift given by God to undeserving sinners through faith. And it hit him like a ton of bricks. From that day forward, Luther would never be the same. In fact, the world would never be the same. Luther describes that moment uh, in the following way. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the, quote, justice of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. Well, what was so radical about this statement, the righteous shall live by faith, that turned Martin Luther's world upside down? The great discovery of Luther was that justification is the declaration of righteousness, not being made righteous like the Catholic Church taught. In other words, justification is not about a moral change that happens within you to make you more righteous. It's purely a legal declaration that God makes stating that you are righteous. Paul describes this picture in Romans chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, when he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You see, it's not so much that we are made righteous, but that God declares us to be righteous as our judge. That's why in verse 5, Paul talks about justifying the wicked. 
crediting this wicked person with righteousness that he actually doesn't deserve, that he doesn't possess within himself. This declaration of God is a once-for-all, irreversible event in the life of believers in which God proclaims us to be righteous in his sight. Wayne Grudem says, It is important to emphasize that this legal declaration in itself does not change our internal nature or character at all. Now, this doesn't mean that the Protestants teach a, quote, cheap salvation which doesn't require any actual life change at all. But this inner change that results in increasing holiness or more Christ-likeness is a process that's called sanctification, not justification. And that distinction is critical to understanding salvation. Bruce Demarest uh, Demarest clarifies this distinction when he says, Justification, distinct from sanctification, involves a change in the believer's standing before God rather than a change of nature. Justification, moreover, is an instantaneous event rather than a lifelong process of moral and spiritual renewal. In other words, we see justification is a declaration of righteousness that happens in an instant and it's undeserved. It's all an act of God by grace in which we can stand innocent before him. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the lifelong process of becoming more righteous, more like Jesus Christ. And we have to recognize that these are two fundamentally different works of God in our life. And it's important that we don't confuse the two. At the heart of justification is the fact that God declares guilty people innocent. As if we've never done anything bad. All of the stuff that we've done that's wrong in our lives, it's as if God just overlooks it all. Romans 4, verse 7 to 8, as we saw, it said, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. In verse 8, we see this declaration nature of justification. Our sin isn't removed. It's not saying we didn't do these things, but it's saying that God doesn't, quote, count it against us. In this sense, justification is like a judge's legal declaration of innocence on one accused of a crime. God, the divine judge, declares us righteous, changing our legal status from, quote, guilty to not guilty. And he does this before we've changed a single thing about the way we live our lives. In describing justification in this way, uh, perhaps you picked up on a problem that emerges regarding this doctrine. How can it be that a guilty person can simply be declared innocent? I mean, isn't that a miscarriage of justice? I'm sure many of you are familiar with the uh, legend of King Arthur, uh, those stories of Excalibur and how uh, the young King Arthur comes from uh, obscurity to end up ruling the land. Um, Well, King Arthur rises to power and he establishes a kingdom called Camelot and a rule to lead this kingdom, a rule of law in which every person is to be treating others with dignity uh, as equally valued members of the society that he's created. And thus, you have the the Knights of the Round Table, you know, a table that's uh, circular so that no single knight has a greater status than anybody else. And so under this wise rule, Camelot flourishes. 
until one day, King Arthur catches his closest, most trusted friend, Lancelot, sleeping with his wife, uh, Queen Guinevere. Well, Lancelot flees to France, while Guinevere is left to face the charges of her treachery against the king. Guinevere has betrayed the king, has violated the rules of Camelot. She has brought shame to the kingdom. And the law dictates that Guinevere, as a consequence of her, uh, of her wrongdoing, must be burned at the stake. But the problem is that King Arthur is torn between his need to honor this rule of law that he himself created and his love for his wife Guinevere, as well as even for his, uh, his love for Lancelot. And so on the night of her execution, King Arthur does something interesting. He orders that lights be lit on his castle tower. And he does this because he suspects that Lancelot will come to rescue her. Um, and so he wants to be sure that Lancelot will be able to find his way uh, to Guinevere, guided by this light on the, ca on the castle tower. Well, sure enough, just as Guinevere is about to meet her fate, as the executioner is about to put the fires to the stake, Lancelot shows up out of the forest with his army, and he rescues Guinevere. And King Arthur watches these events from his chamber window, breathing a sigh of relief that his wife's life was spared, even as his own men are being overcome by Lancelot's army. You know, as heroic and romantic as this legend of Camelot may be, as a story, it has a major flaw. As a king, Arthur violates his own rule of law. The guilty are not punished. The cheating pair get away with the crime. And they ride off into the sunset like heroes to live happily ever after. In other words, justice is never served. Proverbs 17 verse 15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. But doesn't God violate his own principle by acquitting the guilty through this doctrine of justification? You know, as much as we love to see demonstrations of grace, we also long for justice, to know that evil will be punished for all the wrong that is done on earth, that one day there will be a day of reckoning. Well, the answer to this dilemma is that Jesus offers us his own righteousness, a righteousness that we could never earn by our own efforts. In other words, Jesus took sin upon himself on the cross and thus bore the wrath of God that should have been ours. Thus Christ satisfied God's righteous demands and became our substitute, receiving the punishment that each one of us deserved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul clearly points out the nature of the exchange that occurred on the cross. Christ was made sin because of our sin, and we became righteous because of Christ's righteousness. In other words, it's not so much that we just get away with it scot-free and the punishment is avoided. It's that that punishment fell on Christ himself. And so out of God's sense of justice, he will not punish us because Christ has taken our punishment for us.
But justification is more than just our sins not counting against us. It means that Jesus' righteousness is also credited into our account as well. In other words, all the righteous acts of Jesus are placed into our account as though we ourselves have done them. In Romans 4, verses 18 to 25, Paul says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why, quote, it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This word credited to is similar to the, quote, count against language of Romans 4, 7, and also can be translated as to, quote, reckon or to impute. Now, these words like reckon or impute, uh, we don't really use them in modern English anymore, but they're really important words to understand this doctrine of justification. It's the language of accountants, and it carries the idea of transferring a balance from one account to another. Um, to impart something to someone is to pass on or transmit or bestow something to someone so that they have a share in it. Uh, for example, God imparts gifts and fruits of the Spirit so that we may be that, that, that these gifts and fruits can become a part of who we actually are. Uh, and so that's what it means when God says uh, that he imparts something to us. But the Bible doesn't say that he imparts righteousness as much as he imputes righteousness. And that distinction is critical because to be imputed with something is to be granted something totally outside of ourselves, but nevertheless credited or reckoned to us as though it were ours. In other words, technically, it's not our righteousness in the sense that we did anything to contribute to it. But what God does is take all the righteousness from Jesus' account and he reckons or imputes it to our account, giving us credit for it. That's why Paul calls Christ our righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. In other words, all of those times when Jesus overcame temptation, all those times that he sacrificed his own energy and time to minister to others, every time that Jesus turned the other cheek and loved his enemies, all of that is now credited into our account. In other words, when God looks at us, the reason why he smiles, even in the face of everything wrong that we have done and do and will do, is because he sees the beauty of Christ's righteousness through us. And he smiles with honest and great pleasure. You know, when we truly understand this idea of imputation, of justification, we can understand why Luther's teaching on justification was so scandalous to the Catholic Church. 
I mean, it, at a logical human level, it doesn't make sense. It even seems wrong because there's a, a side in every one of us that feels like, you know, you got to earn it. You got to do something to prove that you're worthy of this, that you're deserving of it. But the, just, the, the doctrine of justification cuts through all of that and says, you know what? It's not something that you've contributed to, that you deserve, that you've earned. It's purely an act of grace on God's part to act, to treat you as though you had not done it. And all those things that you actually failed in and didn't do because Jesus did them, it is now credited into your account. Well, how do we obtain this justification that the scriptures promise? Well, in one word, the answer is faith. Faith. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, it says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It's through faith that a person is justified. Uh, in other words, in order to receive this justification, I need faith because I have to totally rely on a righteousness that doesn't come from my own works. It's not something that I am capable of contributing to or doing. It's, it's, a, it's a gift from God that I have to receive totally undeserved. In other words, to have faith is to trust in a righteousness that's alien to me. It's foreign to me. It's nothing that I've done. It's Christ's righteousness imputed to me. And that's why faith is so critical. But that's also precisely why so many stumble on this point of faith. Because I think the truth is for so many of us, for in truth all of us, in our natural state, we are driven to try to prove this worthiness, to somehow contribute to our righteousness. But the Bible says that that is not possible. That the only chance that we have of being found acceptable in God's eyes is to trust and receive Christ's righteousness. And so the, this righteousness is only obtained when we live every day by faith, trusting that it is God who declares me righteous, despite all of the repeated ways that I demonstrate my lacking, my shortcoming, despite all of my ugliness and my failures. I am justified. I am righteous in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for me. And that's the awesome and wonderful message of justification. Thank you.